Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. I get a lot of questions about PCOS, and two of the most common questions are around what tests you should have done to find out if you even have PCOS, and then what types of lab tests you might want to consider to find out more information about what root causes may be driving your symptoms. So I'm super excited for our guest today who can address all of those questions plus more. Dr. Karina Dunlap is a licensed naturopathic doctor and a women's health and hormone specialist. She's the creator of Health by Design, a deeply personalized women's healthcare program, and the Healthy Hormones Method, a transformational framework and course for women, specializing in the treatment of conditions that range from irregular periods to PMS, thyroid imbalances, PCOS, endometriosis, pelvic pain, and menopause. She is an internationally recognized expert in natural fertility optimization and women's health at all stages of life. Dr. Dunlap is a clinician, researcher, educator, and speaker. Welcome, Dr. Dunlap. I am so glad I finally got the chance to chat with you in person or as in person as things are these days. Um, Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so, so thrilled to be here. Such an honor. And again, also so happy to be speaking with you. We've been communicating for so long now, and it's just so nice to be actually speaking. Anyway, so yes, so thanks for the introduction. I am a naturopathic doctor and researcher with a focus in women's health at all stages of life. My training is unique because while I went through a uh, an accredited program to become a naturopathic doctor. I also got a master's of science in integrative medical research. I did both of those degrees simultaneously and postgraduately went on to do both a residency in primary care and women's health care, and also a postgraduate research fellowship with the the research team and um, department that I studied under. It was such an amazing opportunity for me because through both my residencies and also my postgraduate research fellowship, I was able to shadow professionals and experts in the field of my interest. So with I was a fellow under endocrinologists, both general and reproductive, 
GYNs and also in gastro health focused care. So a lot of my interests and training was really honed in at an early stage. And then I got to work at a menopause specific clinic as well uh, during the, the five years postgraduately that I was in Portland, Oregon, where I started my, my practice. And that was also really wonderful and, and such great experience. So yeah, I, I have moved to Portland, Maine now. I'm in Portland, Maine. I've been here for the last three years. I have a license to practice uh, as a naturopathic doctor in four states, California, Oregon, New Hampshire, and Maine. And I have a concierge uh, women's health practice where I see patients one-on-one for a year at a time and offer very bio-individualized care. Um, and I'm working on launching my exciting new offerings that are able to be accessible to more individuals without that. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's not accessible to all to be, and I can't offer care one-on-one care to everyone, but I'm so excited to be launching those in the next few months. So I'm really looking forward to that. I feel that. I mean, um, you know, there's only so much time in the day and in, in our calendar to, see patients. So being able to share your knowledge in a broader way and help more people at, you know, what's typically a more accessible price point is always a good goal to have. And, you know, you kind of mentioned the the licensure too, where, you know, there are certain states where you just can't work with people, you know, and it's kind of funny. We were, uh, the way we originally connected is I was, on the New Hampshire seacoast, which is exactly an hour from Portland, Maine. But if I drove north five minutes, I was in Maine. If I drove south 10 minutes, I was in Mass. So, you know, I've also ended up being licensed in multiple states um, just to open the doors up to my practice to more people. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, when you have so many people asking questions and you know you can provide that information, it's like you want to get it out there. So I want to give so much more just like you do. Yeah, I, I don't think people realize uh, the extra work that comes with being licensed in extra states. But, oh, yeah, definitely. You know, it's like how many continuing ed credits <laughs> do I need for mass versus, you know, and it's always like not at all aligned with the national um, credentialing. <laughs> it's, you have to keep a spreadsheet unto itself for all of that. <laughs> I, I do. I have a spreadsheet. What do I, what do I need for the state and when? Um, so, you know, for those of you who, who might not know, can you explain a little bit about the difference between a naturopathic doctor or ND and an MD or medical doctor? Sure. Yeah. So the general educational structure for naturopathic doctors is comparable to that of conventional medical doctors and also osteopathic doctors. So in all three of those programs, we are required to have prerequisites or requirements. uh, And then we go through the first two years of our, our doctorate trainings. We go through basic medical sciences, biomedical sciences, which include all the, well, beforehand we get like the gen chem and OCHEM, that's our prereqs um, in addition to others like physics. But then during those first two years, we're doing AMP. A lot of us even have gone through like your cadaver labs, things like that, your biochem, your pathophys, diagnostics, um, which include physical imaging and labs. And then the second two years differ somewhat, but also are also, some of them are also the same. Some of the things are also the same that we're, we're doing 
for example, as NDs, we do go through the individual special specialties, including things like gynecology, endocrinology, gastroenterology. We're getting courses on all those pieces. And then we, in the second years, we get all of our modalities, like our treatment modalities. So as NDs, we get, we do have two years of pharmacology. I don't think people realize that, but we do get two years of that. We get two years of nutrition, two years of botanical medicine. We do a whole neuromusculoskeletal hands-on training. We get IV therapy training. We do all the, um, all the, we have a bunch of other modalities that we use and including things like nutraceuticals. Those are all part of our wheelhouse and our, and our toolbox. Um, and MDs are getting, they're doing the pharmacology and more. And we also do minor surgery too. We get minor surgery, but there are only so many states, all the states are different who license, who do recognize MDs and who are officially have a licensure for that state. So depending on each state, we have different scopes of practice, but really the difference where the difference lies. And we do both um, NDs, MDs, DOs, we all have licensing exams. So we use the same kind of training manuals. We use things like USMLE for our first, there are two sets of exams. One is after your first two years, it's more of a basic, basic science exam. Um, We use similar training manuals for that, like the USMLE I mentioned, um, after those second two years, so right for MDs often and DOs, it's right before graduation for us. It was right after graduation. Um, we get, do more of a clinical board exam. So ours is, ours included a lot of our, our specialty modalities that are unique for NDs, but then we go on to do very different things postgraduately. So MDs, DOs are often doing residencies for many. It's like a requirement of their practice. And then they will, if they want to specialize, they have to do uh, fellowships as well. And so that can be four to six years post that first four years. So you're looking at a whole 10 years of training. That's really, really like MDs get such, and NDs get such very specific training postgraduately. And that's when you learn so, so much. Uh, as, as NDs, we're not required to do any sort of residencies um, or fellowships, but I would say about 10%, I'm just guessing here, but approximating, but about 10% of us do residencies um, and then very few of us do fellowships. And I was so, so fortunate to be able to do both. So I worked really hard to do both. I was, I was like, after, I mean, I went back to school, I did my prereq pre-med prereqs in my late twenties. I went back to school for <laughs> naturopathic medicine when I was in my early thirties. So I was really hyper-focused. I mean, I was just, I was so ready to go. And then I did those two degrees and I did my residencies and fellowships. So it was really unique for our, our field, but in terms of practice, um, it depends on the state. So, uh, every state has a different basically scope, which means what the doctors are permitted to do. NDs in in the states of Washington, Oregon, we do so, so much. We're prescribing pretty much um, most pharmacologics, um, including controlled substances. We're doing minor surgery as a naturopathic women's health focused doc. I was doing um, endometrial biopsies, certainly PAPS. Uh, I was the primary care physician for a lot of my patients. And then um, and then we also can specialize, but every state's very different. In the state of Maine, it's just a little bit different. Of course, our philosophy is very different too. Um, certainly, we're looking to use the least invasive method or least invasive treatment modality for the greatest effect. I would say a lot of MDs do also prescribe to that, but they're not using like natural medicine necessary lifestyle, diet, that sort of thing. Um, and they don't, most MDs do not get even any nutrition training. So that's really always was shocking to me (laughs) in my, um, but you know, I have lots of amazing MD colleagues who have gone or DO colleagues who have gone on to do a lot of extracurricular and, and additional training to get more like of the functional medicine approach, or they're looking to get additional, um, uh, integrative and, and, um, holistic training. So. 
I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I think a lot of people don't realize to, you know, the difference between a registered dietitian and a nutritionist and, you know, similar to all of the pathways that you described, the MD, the DO, the ND, um, there's a specified pathway to get an RD and you know, essentially the, the undergrad training is pre-med, um, minus Mm -hmm. I think one chemical chemistry course. Um, so (laughs) it's like you do everything, but this one, and you know, I was good. I was good with three chemistry courses. I didn't need a fourth in that. Although I I loved nutritional biochem. I feel like that's where, you know, all of that stuff you learn in general and organic, like, and biochem comes together and you're like, Oh, this is why I should care about this. (laughs) it's fascinating once you get to that point and that's why you did what you did. So of course you're going to be super excited for that kind of info, but it it is, it's, it's so fun. It's fun to teach too, when you get to that point. Yeah. And so you kind of mentioned this, but um, there are some states where NDs can be your PCP and I think Mm -hmm. it's great. (laughs) Yeah, Um, it is great. (laughs) You know, and, and even, um, you know, in New Hampshire here, uh, my naturopath takes insurance. Um, so it's like, oh, this is great. Um, so it's, it's good to have, you know, the PCP for things like, you know, I don't know, I guess she does my cholesterol test every year. Um, and then I see the ND for everything else. (laughs) So it works out. That's perfect. Yeah. It's, um, and in the States of Washington and in Oregon, so I have my license in Oregon. In Oregon, I am considered a PCP and I was basically everyone's PCP there. I took insurance for all, um, I was in network with all insurance, basic major plans, but in the state of Maine, we're not considered primary care. We're considered mm-hmm. specialists. And really my focus is women's health is a specialty mm-hmm. training. Although I'm, I keep my eye on things for people, but I'm not considered the PCP. And in the state of Maine, we have a few more hurdles, some of which I would get very frustrated with, but, um, our, our, we need to update our scope and everything in the state. I mean, the last time we did that through, our, anyway, it's, it, it needs to be updated. It's yeah. It's complicated. Um, yeah. Something that you had mentioned when you were talking about your training was the fact that you also did a extensive training in gastroenterology. And, you know, it's like, I think we can, we can sort of get into our silos and working with specific conditions, you know, namely hormone conditions, but the bottom line is if your gut's not working, your hormones are not (laughs) going to be pretty. So, um, always good to have that, that additional background and training too. And then we'll talk about some of the things, you know, that you might need to rule out or consider in addition to PCOS when you're working with somebody. Um, so one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on the podcast is to talk about something that I think there's a lot of confusion on, which is lab testing for PCOS. So why don't we start at the beginning uh, with diagnosis? <laughs> so sure. what types of practitioners can diagnose PCOS if that's something a woman suspects she might have? Hint. RDs cannot diagnose. So um, that is outside of our, our scope. So I always, you know, I always feel so bad, but it's like, you know, I have to direct you back to your doctor to ask those questions because, mm-hmm. you know, I can't give you a medical diagnosis. Right. So, so the people that can diagnose you with 
any official medical diagnosis are those who can, who have a license to practice medicine of like who, who have they within their scope basically is, is the diagnostics and the lab interpretation, um, within giving you, okay, officially you have PCOS. That is your medical diagnosis. I believe, um, for example, MDs, NDs, DOs, NPs, PAs, those are some standard, um, um, official license licenses that can typically um, diagnose. It depends on the state. Like I said, um, NDs are mm-hmm. are recognized in twenty five states. Um, so it depends on, and each of those states is a bit different. But within the states that they're recognized as doctors, they can diagnose. So it basically, and then the diagnosis relies on. Do you want me to dive into the diagnostic criteria? Yeah, yeah. Like, what tests was you, would you look at specifically <laughs> that might indicate PCOS or not? Yeah, yeah. So, so the diagnosis criteria relies on this criteria that's been debated over the years. But basically, is considered the consensus is this criteria called the Rotterdam criteria. Yeah, we've, we've talked about that a little awesome. bit. Awesome. Have to go into great detail. Okay, great detail. Okay, okay. I like to start there though because it explains yeah. what I'm looking for in the um, mm-hmm. in the in the diagnostic workup. But basically, two of three have to come up positive, and that is um, anovulation or the lack of ovulation or inconsistent ovulation. That's one criteria. The second is hyperandrogenism. That's clinical or biological. That means as signs of or on biomarkers on on labs, and then PC and then signs of polycystic ovarian changes on the morphology changes on the ovaries, which you can see with the transvaginal ultrasound. Um, but basically when we're looking for those criteria, we do lab work. So which labs are, and that's the main question is which labs are we going to run? So first of all, we want to figure out what, um, if somebody is ovulating. So the ovulation piece in question is, um, is not the easiest to figure out. That's why this is a big topic because if somebody is, or isn't ovulating is not a hundred percent all determined based on serum progesterone, for example, which is one of the tests that can be run. Serum progesterone is tricky because, um, while it is one of the tests that can determine whether or not someone has ovulated, the interpretation can be a bit, um, confusing. So first of all, we have to know what window to test progesterone. Mm-hmm. It's a serum test. It's a blood test. Um, it's typically tested on day 18 to day 24 of a standard length cycle, which not everybody has, or we say about seven days before their expected menses. So, and serum progesterone can fluctuate. It can go up and down in a pulsatile manner within like up to eightfold within 90 minutes. So, so within a day that, that level can really be high or low, um, depending on the time. And you can't quite predict it. It's not like best to test it as a fasting lab necessarily. It's really just can be good, go up and down. Mm-hmm. And we feel most comfortable saying, yes, you have ovulated if it's above a certain range, but that range is a little fuzzy if it's low. So for example, if you get a progesterone serum, if you get a luteal phase, which is the second half of your cycle, progesterone back that says you're about four to six nanograms per milliliter or above most diagnostic, um, doctor, most, most people will say, okay, that looks like you, that does indicate ovulation. However, those low values, we could have caught you in a low point or a higher point. We not, we're not sure. So it's a little bit of a fuzzy yes or no. Um, if somebody's closer to 10, it's a much stronger, okay, I feel like, yes, you did ovulate. So that looks like you had a positive ovulation for that cycle. At least it can change cycle to cycle. So what a better kind of measure would be is to see, you know, can we get either three days back to back, but that's hard, you know, to, to do a blood draw for three days back to back and then get an average or three cycles back to back. And then you get three progesterone draws 
with three cycles back to back. And then you get a much better idea if people are ovulating regularly, but there are other ways to check. So, um, some of my favorite ways and remember that just by knowing if somebody has a regular cycle and what is a regular cycle, regular cycle will be, you know, anywhere between every 25 to 35 days that that's pretty consistent for them. That's technically considered a regular cycle, but even if somebody does have what's considered a regular cycle for them, 10 to 15% of the time may, may or may not be ovulating. So you can't just say, okay, they have a regular cycle. Therefore they are ovulating. That's not the case. You really have to know what to do. So there are other ways to determine ovulation. Basal body temperature monitoring is great. It's actually one of my favorite ways because first of all, why we measure progesterone is because when you ovulate the remaining follicle or the corpus luteum that's left over is what produces progesterone. So if you don't ovulate, you are not going to produce progesterone. So um, you have to have that ovulation to produce progesterone. So, but basically what happens when the progesterone is produced is it has a thermoregulatory effect on the body. So basically it can raise your body temperature. And in that second half of your cycle, we see about a 0.5 to one degree rise in the temperature. And if it's sustained and you get that kind of pattern cycle to cycle, it looks like you are ovulating. If you're not, or it's going up and down, or you get one day that it goes up and one day it goes down, it's really not. And, and like, again, these, there's no specific, <laughs> um, there's not like an absolute, this is the test we use to determine ovulation. It's tricky. We put them all together, but if you do get that inconsistent up and down, it, it may be that you are not ovulating. And that really is common with, with patients with PCOS to see kind of inconsistent basal body temperatures. And then, um, a transvaginal ultrasound, if you get it, if you do it like right after ovulation, you can see signs of ovulation, but again, um, most people aren't getting those unless they're going through some form of like IVF prep. So, and then the ovulator predictor kits are exactly what they, what they say they are. They're ovulator predictor kits. So they're not an absolute, yes, you did ovulate. They're a predictor of that ovulation and a certain percentage of the, of those, um, that are positive are not actually going on to ovulate. So it's tricky. The number one test though, to determine ovulation, I would say that's typically used is a serum progesterone level, but I don't really only rely on that. So I'm using like basal body temperature. I often will see if they are doing ovulator predictor kits. I'm looking at their cycle and I'm trying to get an idea of cycle to cycle, you know, for an average. So it's not just one cycle we base it off of, but what does it look like is happening um, over the course of a few months of time. And then what is their history too? Like you can often tell too in symptoms, you know, it, a lot of times people will have worse symptoms, mood symptoms, for example, on, on months that they don't ovulate, or they might have early bleeding patterns. Like they'll have um, spotting before bleeding, having their full blown cycle or their full blown menses. They'll have a lot of days of premature bleeding or inconsistent bleeding. And that often is a sign that maybe there's not regular ovulation. Also, if they're not getting their period, then a lot of the times they're not ovulating then, but that's the, the main workup for ovulation. So that's one of the criteria we have to determine for, or we want to look at for PCOS. The other, so what about uh, hyperandrogenism or high um, clinical or biological signs of androgens? So androgens are your, like your testosterone. So typically um, what's run for this, and this is the standard, <laughs> the standard workup is just like a serum total 
testosterone. But in addition to that, a lot of people will run some other tests because they want to make sure that they're not missing something that would be something else other than um, PCOS. So often what the other tests that get run are 17 hydroxy progesterone, which is a test that you use to rule out something other than PCOS called non-classic congenital adrenal hyperplasia. We do run 17 hydroxy progesterone, total testosterone. Some people will also run DHEAS. And I heard you mention that one earlier. Um, Some people do run that. Although the standard of care literature says, you know, it's not a determinant or a diagnostic. um, It's not a determinant of the diagnosis. So it's a bit more controversial, I would say, but it I typically run all three of those because I don't want to miss something like an androgen secreting tumor, which Mm -hmm. is also something that can be, can look like PCOS um, in terms of the diagnosis, but you don't want to miss it. And you have to run that one to be able to determine between the difference PCOS and a tumor that would be secreting testosterone too. So, so I run, I run all three of those. And then of course I'm asking and looking for signs of it, things like acne, things like hair loss, um, on the head, especially the temporal region and the frontal region. So think about like male pattern, typical male pattern balding, um, signs of hirsutism. So that would be on the body in places you, you know, that you wouldn't typically, or you might not typically think of having coarse hair. It's specifically coarse hair. It's not the fine bellus hair, but it's like chin hair, um, between the breasts on the breasts, upper abdomen, upper back, down the legs, in between the legs, on the arms. And there's a, there's a scoring system we use called the Fairman Galloway score. And, t- and typically anything above four to six is considered, and this is coarse hair. And on, there's so many variations on this based on um, ethnicity and like mm-hmm. your family history. And some people are just have more hair, you know, it's just part of their genetics. And, and so PCOS can be a genetic thing too, but, but it's um, you have to look at all of that in context too. So it can be clinical or biological. So for the diagnosis of hyperandrogenism or high for that criteria to be, you know, a check, you check that criteria. Mm-hmm. It can be both signs of it or on labs. You actually can have normal labs and still qualify for the diagnosis, which I don't think people realize. Like you can just have signs of it and still qualify for the diagnosis based or that criteria of the diagnosis. There are other labs too, which we can talk about in a little bit that I always, always run. But then for the third criteria, which is the ovaries, you have to have an ultrasound to do that. And it has to look very, very specific. So, but remember you only have to have two of three. So you technically don't need to have that ultrasound come back positive for the classic string of pearls look, or what it is considered the polycystic ovarian changes or morphology. You don't have to have that in order to qualify for the diagnosis. Yeah. So, so, so much to, to jump in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I want to talk about some of those other disorders that might mm-hmm. mimic PCOS in a sec, but I've definitely, you know, had folks come into my programs with sort of a, a question mark, uh, PCOS <laughs> diagnosis. Yeah, and then, you know, after, after what they learn in my course, they go back to their doctor and they're like, Hey, I realized I was never tested for X, Y, or Z. And it, you know, it turns out to be that non-classical congenital mm-hmm. adrenal hyperplasia, or they have high prolactin or, uh-huh. you know, some low thyroid or something mm-hmm. that is also interfering with 
their ovulation. Exactly. You know, so I think it's, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the exclusionary tests that should be run in the beginning, but I, I do find yeah. they're not always run. Um, I, I do also always look, you know, when I'm looking at which androgen is high, whether it's the testosterone or the mm-hmm. DHEA, it's sort of to help determine, well, what's really driving those androgen symptoms for you? You know, with the the high testosterone, it's typically being driven by that insulin resistance that's mm-hmm. making exactly. the testosterone higher with the yeah. You know, if, if testosterone is normal or low um, and DHEA is off the charts high, um, mm-hmm. then it's like, okay, well, now we need to talk about stress management and <laughs> sleep and not skipping meals and, you know, all of those sort of basic balance principles. Um, I wanted to ask, because uh, I think, you know, there's definitely some di- debate about the criteria and about mm-hmm. well, what, you know, what do we really need for a PCOS diagnosis? And I know there are some experts who really think that high androgens piece is a crucial component to PCOS. And I think sometimes, you know, especially if someone has gone off the pill recently, for example, they might have those ovaries that appear polycystic and they're having irregular cycles and ovulation. So technically they could be diagnosed with PCOS at that time. Do you see that? Yeah. And there are other types of PCOS. So this is like the, there are like non, I do see that exact scenario. And I also see this PCOS-like phenotype, which is different um, and and less common, but it appears typically in a subgroup of people at younger ages, they might have, um, it might be more like the term lean type is also used, which is a Mm. little bit confusing, I think, because not all um, folks who, who, I mean, PCOS is basically all different body habitus, can be any body habitus, right? Uh, Like classically, it used to be thought as like more, more women would be, um, overweight who had PCOS, but it's just not the case. Like I see all different body habitus women with PCOS, but there is a, um, PCOS like phenotype where they have low testosterone. Actually, um, it's part of the criteria of the, of this other phenotype diagnosis. Typically for a, a total serum, it's less than 19. They have low DHEAS they might have low cortisol, they would have high AMH, which means, and I'll talk about what AMH is, but it's a hormone that's released from the granulosa cells or the, those developing follicles, which you can also see on ultrasound too, as you can see that classic um, string of pearls. So they might have a, that morphology on ultrasound show up positive, but they have low testosterone. And um, in these cases, they need to be treated and they might not have any signs of high insulin or signs of any sort of blood sugar dysregulation, but they are certainly considered to be PCO, have PCOS. So this is a different treatment approach too, for those folks. And it's important to know that there are variants on the standard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about something that I've noticed uh, recently. Um, and, you know, I really, I haven't been in this field for decades, but I'm sensing a change in the positive direction. You know, 
I definitely see a lot of women who, you know, maybe they went on the pill um, in their teen years because they were dealing with acne or irregular periods and they just kind of went on the pill and stayed on the pill. And, um, you know, maybe they're in their early 30s now. They got married and go off the pill thinking, oh, I'm going to start trying to get pregnant and nothing happens. Like there's no, no periods, no ovulation, no nothing. And so, you know, they end up going down that road of, you know, getting a fertility diagnosis, which is where they're, they're diagnosed for with PCOS for the first time in their Mm -hmm. early thirties. But then often they're thinking back and they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Cause I always had X, Y, or Z. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've been seeing a shift lately in terms of people reaching out to me. And I think, I think it's because the moms of teens now are (laughs) are around my age. And I think it's because, you know, women, women, our age are, are much more on top of hormones. We've grown up talking about things like periods with our friends and, Mm you know, the second that their teenage daughter is having issues with their cycle, they reach out, um, to try to try to get them diagnosed. So I'm seeing more, more, um, teens diagnosed with PCOS at, you know, 15, 16, 17. Are you seeing that too? Oh my gosh. Yes. And I have lots of moms who reach out and they're like, my daughter has irregular cycles or they might have, you know, lots of acne or, you know, what should I do? And I don't want to just she or, you know, they, or the mom, you know, don't want to, they don't want to just go on birth control now because, and, and something important to know too, is in the beginning, irregular cycles, just like they are the later stage of life is actually the norm because most young people who are, go through menarche go start their periods. Actually, you're for the first several years, you're not ovulating regularly. So that's, you know, it's very normal to have irregular cycles um, and or not be ovulating every cycle. Anyway, a lot of people are reaching out. Yeah. A lot of parents and, and, and also their daughters are there, mm-hmm. um, you know, who are going through it. I love it. I know. I love it too. It's It's so great. Like so great (laughs) to get that um, care so early Mm -hmm. on and hopefully avoid some of the negative, you know, consequences. Um, And you don't have to talk to me about the irregular periods at the later (laughs) stage of life. Like (laughs) I swear every cycle this past 18 months has been like, is this, is this perimenopause? Is this the pandemic? Like what's going on? It's like, I know that reverse puberty chaos that can happen. Um, yeah. Side note. note. Um, So I think, you know, to, to touch more upon some of, some of those other diagnoses, you know, I think sometimes the, the kind of narrative out there about PCOS and, and finding out if you have PCOS, like it doesn't, you don't always see, this whole idea that PCOS is really a diagnosis of exclusion um, Mm -hmm. and that there should be other tests run to Mm -hmm. rule out other conditions that might look like PCOS, but are actually something else. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you, you know, maybe you've got some red flags that are making you think like, oh, this might be PCOS, but it it might be something else. Like what are, mm-hmm. what are some of those things you mentioned a couple of them, like mm-hmm. the, you know, CAH and potentially, you know, androgen producing tumors, but what are some of those other um, conditions you might be looking mm-hmm. to rule out? Yeah. So, and that is 
such an extremely important point is that, you know, if somebody suspects it's so easy to hyper-focus on something you think you might have and then say, okay, what does the diagnosis rely on? Let me get those specific tests. But what gets missed is what else it could be. And so as um, whenever you learn any sort of diagnostic algorithm, you're thinking about what would be something, what, what, what else do I need to make sure I rule out always? You always have to think about that. So um, for somebody who's not having a period or who's having elongated cycles, you have to think about, there are like really three top things we want to think about. The first, or in no no official order, but um, functional hypothalamic amenorrhea is a condition typically of excess energy output, insufficient energy input. So I think about it like that. Um, a lot of, um, we also call it the classic female, like athletic triad or, but it's not always due to somebody who's exercising a lot and not getting enough calories, it really can be excess stress too. So somebody whose brain is really, really sensitive to that um, and who's very stressed can also experience skip periods or elongated cycles or missed ovulation because of this FHA or functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. The other is premature ovarian insufficiency. Also no, also we use the term diminished ovarian reserve. We also use the term well, early menopause, or it could be menopause due to many reasons that can lead to irregular cycles, absent cycle or absent periods. And so, and I can talk about what we do to the labs specifically. And then PCOS, of course, also leads to these irregular cycles and absent cycles or absent periods. So you, you know, the things I, and I run and I run these tests in all my patients, um, by the way, I always am looking at like all the factors, but and then we have to make sure it's not a thyroid issue. We have to make sure it's not a prolactin hormone issue. We have to make sure that it's not Cushing's, which can also mimic PCOS. And then um, even some fibroids actually can too. So, you know, the things that I'm looking at, I'm running, running labs at the beginning of a cycle and during luteal phase. So I'm looking at their FSH, which is follicle stimulating hormone. And that is something that can, during the beginning cycle, beginning during their period, mm -hmm. basically, or if somebody's not getting a period, I'll just run it just that any, on any day. Um, and I'll often do that in conjunction with LH and estradiol. Typically day, those are the, what you would be called the day three labs, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Day two to four, day three. Yep. Um, or any day if somebody's not having a period and then we're looking at you're often, I will run if, if they are, especially if they are somebody who's preconception, I will ask them if they would like to run an, an AMH and it's not a diagnostic criteria for mm -hmm. PCOS, but if I see that it's really high in the upper 75th percentile or above, it gives me a clue like, okay, this somebody is somebody who might be, might have high MH as a sign. It can be a sign of it. It's not a diagnostic criteria. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm, of course, I'm running full thyroid labs with full, full panel, including their antibodies to make sure I know if they do have a um, hypo or hyperthyroid issue, what it is due to, or what's underneath it or what type it is. And then I'm also looking at insulin. I'm looking at blood sugar. I'm looking at their hemoglobin A1C, their three month average. I'm looking at, or for we're going to run a prolactin, a fasting prolactin. With Cushing's, the diagnosis is much more complex and requires a um, license to prescribe a certain medication that you have to take in order to get the official diagnosis. So that's typically a referral. But um, somebody who has Cushing's, for example, they're going to have similar presentation. They might have menses that are far apart. They might not be ovulating regularly. They can have signs and symptoms of hirsutism or the hair growth on the body um, in areas other than on the head. Um, they might be 
experiencing easy gain, easy weight gain, difficulty with weight loss, but they might also have signs of cortisol excess, like you had mentioned, or central weight gain, like around their abdomen, they might have a high, high blood pressure, purple, like stretch marks, proximal or muscle like weakness. Uh, and that is a for sure referral to endocrinology. Yeah, um, that, that all yeah, makes covers. sense. And I think, yeah. um, you know, it is important to note that, you know, that high, high AMH can be, you know, typically seen with PCOS, much like, um, the FSH LH ratio, which, mm-hmm. you know, again, is not diagnostic of PCOS, right. but, you know, is a pattern that's very typically seen to have LH be much higher than in comparison to FSH. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Often it's like a two to one pattern, but it's not always the case. And, you know, a lot of times you get, you catch people when they're either transitioning into full-blown PCOS or they're coming out of it. Maybe they've been somewhat managing it. They've been reading about what to do. They've been partially doing that. I see that a lot more these days. So it's a little bit harder to diagnose because they're, they're actually managed, starting to manage it, but but yeah, so yeah, but so I don't, I don't rely on the FSH LH ratio, but you can see patterns for sure. Yeah. Um, I think that covers all of the things, um, you know, I definitely have seen folks who've gone to fancy fertility clinics and gotten the PCOS diagnosis and, and I'm looking at the labs like, you know, like, oh. oh yeah, I know, I know, I know. It's so tricky. Okay. Well, oh. we're going to talk about this instead, you know. <laughs> hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. Okay. So like, let's say now someone has that PCOS Mm -hmm. diagnosis, Mm -hmm. you know, what do you, what do you do now? You know, are there additional tests you run? You know, one of the things that I, I also talk about, Mm -hmm. um, a lot is the fact that, you know, insulin resistance and running tests for insulin resistance or prediabetes, you know, it's, is very common in Mm -hmm. PCOS, but again, it's not a diagnostic criteria Mm -hmm. for PCOS. Mm -hmm. Um, So are there other tests like that you're now looking at now that you have determined, yes, it's PCOS? 
<laughs> yeah, of course. Yes, I will. And everybody who I see, you know, I'm thinking about them. I'm not just thinking about their diet. I know you're doing this too, but you're not just thinking about their diagnoses. You're thinking about who they are, right? Who they are as whole people. Like I'm not treating their diagnosis. I'm keeping that in mind, but I'm also treating all aspects of what makes them their healthiest possible self. So we go back to that whole gut focus, right? Um, one interesting mm-hmm. thing though about PCOS and the gut is that, and about the, that interface between the gut and hormones in the gut and the brain is that um, we do have some animal research that shows that animals who have received a fecal microbiota transplant or complete like overhaul of their gut microbiota who previously had the the criteria positive and this is animals so are mice yeah. but um and who had the criteria positive for PCOS after the fecal microbiota transplant we were able to reverse those features or their diagnoses. So um, it's really fascinating that the gut can play, at least in that preliminary research that we've seen, can play such an important and it's something we we suspect and we're seeing more and more research and it's all over the place. And, you know, I think it's just coming where I I'm always doing my like gastro CE and just like, I'm just fascinated with it. But so I always am looking at, I'm actually looking at stool samples for a lot for most, most everybody who comes to see me gets to do a stool sample. It's so fun. They all talk about how fun it is. It's like they post on Instagram, like I'm doing this for Dr. Dunlap. I'm putting my my poop in the mail. And that's, <laughs> like, I guess I'm getting a reputation for it, <laughs> but um, it's because I find it to be so fascinating. Um, so I do look at their stool and it's not anything close to a diagnosis or, you know, um, but I'm, it's part of how I treat. It just is. Um, it's part, part of how I help them become their healthiest self. Um, you know, a lot of, um, let's see what else I'm looking, you know, and I just absolutely have to say, I love how you talk about, there is no one diet for all Mm -hmm. people. Like there is no one diet for people who have the diagnosis of PCOS. It is just, just remember that is so important. Everybody needs different and it's all individualized care, right? So there people need individualized uh, approach for their nutrition recommendations. And so I like to look at just their whole set of labs. I'm running this whole panel of labs. A lot of them I've mentioned when I forgot was the lipids off definitely like mm-hmm. a cholesterol too, but, um, and then I look at their stool and if they are, you know, if they are thinking about, do I have a gluten or wheat allergy? Do I have any sort of other food allergy? I am also going to run now. This is, you know, there is some controversy around food allergy testing, but I still will use it as a place. And by the way, the the labs that I run are labs that I have tested with the research Institute I worked at. So we like did double we yeah. did like send samples, multiple samples from the same individual test that reliability and, and, um, repeatability. So it was, um, it was really important that I used labs that I felt like I could rely on. Um, but anyway, I will run that as a starting place to say, okay, we can do, you know, a modified elimination diet to see if you are sensitive to these foods. Certainly if it's creating inflammation and there's a lot of inflammation in the gut from some high players in the, in the mm-hmm. food world, you know, certainly, you know, it could be helpful to remove some of those for a certain period of time, but not in the long run, because I really want people to live and eat expansively. That is the absolute goal. And similarly, mm-hmm. I see you, you post that a lot too about gluten and wheat. Do I have to be on a gluten and wheat free diet? Do I need to go, um, you know, be gluten free <laughs> because of my diagnosis of PCOS? And you, you bust that myth all the time. And I really appreciate that. So, um, <laughs> you know, I'm yeah, testing- I think it's, I think it's because of, you know, it's a common misperception that you yeah. have to, and, you know, it's yeah. like, well, well, maybe, you know, if, if you've got, if you've got yeah. PCOS plus Hashimoto's, like 
maybe let's talk about, um, <laughs> you know, seeing how you feel off of gluten. And then, um, but that, you know, yeah. I'm always anti removing foods for no reason. And yeah, that's, definitely. I think that's where a lot of my posts come from is that mm-hmm. I'm hearing from all these women who are like, I cut out gluten, I cut out dairy and I'm still not getting regular periods and my skin's still a wreck and I still feel terrible. And it's oh, like, well, yeah. why are you putting yourself <laughs> through that extra, you yeah. know, it's not doing anything for you. Uh, let's add it back, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So, so back to like what else to run, I just, you know, it's really all about how do I work up the whole individual? Um, and that, and that it's a, it's a whole framework that I use for testing, but it's really, it captures the PCOS diagnosis based on the things that I do test for, um, and then based on their intake and their history, you know, it's, it comes out through that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, unless they have like one criteria that comes up positive and I have the other one that's somewhat ambiguous, especially if it's like their ovulation, um, you know, I might say, let's get a transvaginal ultrasound just to see if you have that morphology changes on your over those morphology changes on your ovaries, but it's really not required for a lot of the time, because if you have two of three, and you don't need it. And the one is a ultrasound required ultrasound. Yeah. Do you have um, any tips? I find, you know, um, so many conventional doctors will just run a CBC and the, you know, metabolic panel um, uh-huh. over and over and over and over. And it's like, well, this yeah. is essentially useless. Like, I, you know, I, I will look at things like liver enzymes and, you know, but it's like so many things, you know, rarely Mm -hmm. will you see something really off there. It's like, okay, it's nice to know your iron levels are okay or not okay. Um, (laughs) But I kind of feel like, you know, there's, there's some tests where it's almost like we don't have to run them, you know, because it's like literally every person I see in the Northeastern part of the United States has vitamin D deficiency, mm-hmm. unless somebody already diagnosed them with a vitamin D deficiency and gave them prescription vitamin D to get it back up to a good <laughs> level. It's like, okay, we can pretty much assume some of these things are going to be off with PCOS as well. Like that lipid profile, mm-hmm. you know, very typically see the high LDL, uh, low HDL pattern mm-hmm. in PCOS most people aren't eating enough omega threes, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. I kind of went on a side note, but I'm <laughs> wondering if you might have tips for people on how to ask their doctors for certain tests, you know, <laughs> where they're doing those like CBCs and other kind of basic lab work, but they're not doing a full thyroid panel or they're not looking at their prolactin or not looking at some of those nutrient levels. Like, do you have any, any words of wisdom around that? Yeah, this is tricky. You have either an open-minded doctor or you don't, you know, I, I do. I, it's very tricky. Cause I feel like it also has to do with a little bit of the approach. So you're, you're, that's what you're asking specifically. How do I ask my doctor for these tests? Well, I think, um, some of the thing, some of the way I I'll, I'll often say, you know, let's have you ask in this, in this fashion. And it will be something mm-hmm. like, I've been reading and researching about these tests that seem to be important for making sure I don't have anything else going on other than PCOS. Would you be willing to order these for me? You know, just asking the question. If you get a straight up no, hard no, maybe it's time to to find another doctor who would be willing to do that for you because 
like we've said, a lot of these tests are important to rule out other things that might be going on. Also, they give a bigger picture of what's going on for somebody. And it can include a lot of things other than, and in addition to PCOS. Um, so those are important. Those can be, really be important tests. And um, if you feel like you're not, you're not, your doctor's not working with you. It's not like a, I always think about medicine. It's just like, it has to be a collaborative approach. I'm not, mm-hmm. every person that comes to me has been in their body, knows themselves way better than I do. You know, they come to me being like, this is what's going on for me. I, my job is to listen, is to hear them and to say, okay, let's use that knowledge. And here's some things that, you know, I think have been helpful for a lot of the patients that I see with these mm-hmm. similar symptoms. So it's, you know, it's a collaborative approach. If you just feel like you're butting your head against the wall, turn around and look for a, <laughs> look for another doc. <laughs> if you can, hopefully you can, but the best way I approach, I think at the beginning is just say, I've been researching, I've been reading. I know that doctor, I really appreciate when my doc, when my patients come to me and say, look at this cool study I found, or, um, what do you think about this? I'm super like, thank you. Let's, let's consider it. Or, you know, or maybe it's, it's off, you know, I, I, I honestly rarely will say no, be, unless I can't do something, but, but I, I like that collaborative approach. So. Yeah. I think some, some of the doctors I've seen, some of the specialists definitely um, get a little scared <laughs> when I come into the office with my stack of, of you know, printouts <laughs> from PubMed. Um, but I think, you know, it's important to remember too, that, that as medical professionals, we don't, we don't run tests just for funsies. Like, oh no, we, it's, you know, yeah, it has true. to be medically necessary and we have to right. be able to prove that it's medically necessary. So I always encourage them to talk about some of the symptoms that mm-hmm. align with a condition. Cause you yeah. know, like maybe you didn't mention to your doctor that your hands and feet are cold all the time or that your hair is much thinner now than it was five years ago or that you're tired all the time. Um, mm-hmm you know, and sort of saying, I've, you know, I've been doing some reading and that these sort of symptoms all seem to me that maybe I might, you know, it might be worth looking into whether I might have a thyroid problem or not, you know, that can often lead to them being more willing to run the tests that, that you need. If you can, if you can kind of prove that you've done the research <laughs> and you're like, okay, I th- here's what I think it might be. You know? Exactly. And That's perfect. I, I often ask my clients that I'm like, well, you know, what do you think is going on in the first session? Um, Cause I want to hear, I want to hear from them what their story is. Like you said, like mm-hmm. they know their body so much better than, than I do from the outside, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's such an important point. Like if you, yeah, if you're, if you are looking to get an official diagnosis or you're looking to get or not necessarily that, but just have some things. Yeah. I like what you said. That was just brilliant. Yeah. So definitely back it up with some, this, these are the reasons why I'm, I'm thinking about this, not just because I really been hyper-focused on this one thing, but really look, I have these symptoms and I think it'd be worth it. Yeah. I'm, I'm very careful when it comes to my scope in ordering labs. And so I really, you know, if I'm ordering labs, there's something where the problem can be addressed with mm-hmm. nutrition and lifestyle changes. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's where I differ from, from some folks. Like I personally wouldn't feel comfortable running something like heavy metal tests or, mm-hmm. you know, anything like that, because it's, it's not in my scope to prescribe the treatment, you mm-hmm. know? 
Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of how I, I determine what, <laughs> what I could do and what I can't do, but it's like vitamin, vitamin D levels. That's a hundred percent within myself. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then it was a really good point too, that you have to, you know, doctors don't want to run a test unless it's really medically the significant, it will make a significant difference in their treatment approach or the diagnostic approach. And, you know, there has to be some kind of rationale behind it. Like we, it just, there, we don't need to run and it can, and that's where doctors get frustrated. I think too, where they don't want to just run all the tests because they're mm-hmm. like, look, it's going to be expensive. Number one, it's could be, you know, and a lot of there's, there's pushback from larger organizations too, because it's expensive. And, um, and so, and some doctors really have their hands tied there too, but there has to be a rationale. Like if they can write the rationale in their notes and they say like, yes, somebody has these symptoms of hypo or hyper um, thyroidism at the same time, or um, let's run it. Let's run a full panel and see. Yeah. So really quick, I just want to touch on, are there additional tests that you recommend that people with PCOS monitor regularly, or, you know, I know you're doing all these tests up front to kind of determine what's going on, but then are there things that you continue to check on? Yeah. A lot of the tests that we mentioned, I'll rerun. I I have a pretty um, methodical approach in my practice since I do the concierge-based care. (laughs) So I do baseline six months, one year intervals. If I am treating a thyroid condition, I'm checking in monthly until we get to a really good, um, level where they feel well and their levels look good. Um, but it depends on what we're looking at with folks who have PCOS. I am absolutely rerunning most of those tests. I'm not re-looking at like AMH, for example, but cause that's is a more expensive test, but, um, I will be looking at the, their hormones. I look at, continue to look at their thyroid. I will continue to look at their, um, their insulin, their hemoglobin A1C, their glucose, I will continue to monitor their lipids because also I'm thinking about that individual's whole lifetime. I'm not just thinking about like right now in this phase or preconception phase or fertility postpartum. I'm thinking about like their life. So what, what other risks come with having PCOS There are other risks, long-term cardiometabolic, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, um, if they have heavy, heavy bleeding, absolutely. I'm going to recommend they get a biopsy of their endometrial tissue because there could be, you know, abnormal cells in the uterus. And that's a, that's a long-term risk of PCOS too. So, you know, um, insulin. So I, I mentioned a lot of them, but blood sugar, I'm looking at blood sugar. I'm looking at cardiometabolic factors. So their cholesterol, I'll be monitoring their blood pressure and that sort of thing. Um, how their cycles are doing, um, how they're feeling their mood, because mm-hmm. we know with PCOS, there's a big risk for uh, mood disorders, um, or, you know, anxiety and depression, um, are much higher in folks who have PCOS than who don't. And I'm thinking about like this and like PCMS symptoms, that sort of thing. So it's a lot of intake plus labs. And then if whatever we're treating is, you know, without outside of that diagnostic criteria of PCOS, but I'm just, we're just looking to optimize their health. So if, for example, they did have a, you know, low vitamin levels and there are certain vitamins that do tend to run low mm-hmm. in folks who have PCOS and that those can be in, in vitamin D. Yes. And there's been some debate on that, but, um, but yes, um, you know, certainly I'll be rerunning things like their vitamin D. If I, you know, we're looking at like some standard markers and micronutrient testing, I sometimes will do certainly B12, especially if they're on some sort of metformin. metformin. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it depends a little bit, but you know, there are some standard ones that I always rerun. 
Good. So, you know, kind of to add on to that a little bit, mm-hmm. I think you know, there, there can be this idea that it's it's either or it's either conventional medicine or <laughs> naturopathic medicine or, you know, either a conventional or a more natural approach. And there, you know, it really, it really isn't, you know, conventional medicine absolutely has its place. Um, Are there times when you find pharmaceutical interventions to be helpful for PCOS and what types of situations would those happen in? Yeah, definitely. Oh my goodness. Um, Yeah, this is important. And and it's also, it's also important to say that you know, my patient population is unique because a lot of people who come to see me are people who want to make lifestyle diet changes. They want to go to the natural realm of treatment and they're often more willing to be consistent in their efforts. So, you know, my patient population is a bit skewed. So, you know, I would say 95% of the people I treat who have PCOS are able to do it without medication, which is amazing, but not the standard, like, you know, population, um, certainly. And, Sometimes I will recommend or use um, a medication and it depends on which state I'm treating that person in. Because for example, if I'm going to talk about metformin, let's say they have high insulin, they have high blood pressure or um, blood glucose, or they have a higher um, hemoglobin A1C, perhaps they're pre-diabetic or diabetic, you know, maybe the things that we've tried have just not been enough. And we want to use something like metformin in addition, which is quite strong. And, you know, yes, I use, I'll use all my inositols and my, my training in inositol research is very extensive, but, you know, sometimes for some people it is not enough. And in those folks, it is not a failure to bring in a medication. Um, it is what we need to do. And we will use all the tools we can, because what's most important is that that condition is managed and that person is in their healthiest place. They can be, so they don't run these long-term risks and they feel best and they can function And as long as they tolerate the med well, and that we're watching out for any nutritional deficiencies or anything that comes along with it can come along with it. We're, we're doing so there are cases where medication is very helpful. And then sometimes, you know, the pill is uh, the pill or hormonal birth control Mm -hmm. rather, um, is a good solution for somebody who's just like, look, this is all so much. Number one, it's expensive. Number two, it's a lot of effort. I need a break. (laughs) You know, I don't typically, um, have those usually, like I said, the folks that are coming to see me are wanting to do it a different way, but you know, that's a definitely, that's like, it's all up to that individual. As long as they know, here are all the options for you. This is what exactly it's doing with, with something like hormonal birth control. You know, it's not necessarily managing what's underneath with the, Mm -hmm. with PCOS, you have to still focus on the other stuff, but it, it will, it will at least can help keep things with the hormones with, with the reproductive hormones a little bit more a little bit more. It's suppressing things basically, but at least it's not causing a estrogen dominant situation. So for, you know, in the, in the time that they're being treated with the hormones. So. Right. They're getting that withdrawal bleed and that lowers the risk for the endometrial cancer. I find uh, my grad student kind of uh, patients or people who are, are very, very busy and just yeah, you know, really that they tend <laughs> to gravitate towards something like that, where it's like, yeah, I just can't even think about this right oh, now, you exactly. know? Exactly. And yeah, there are times, there's a season for everything. And yeah, exactly. Like I have the, <laughs> I all have like medical school, medical school students or I'll have, you know, busy practitioners, execs, they'll like, oh my gosh, this is just so much I need I need, I, can I do both? Can I do both approaches? I'm like, yes, of course, let's do it. It's called integrative <laughs> medicine. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing because we just use all the tools that are perfect for you. And like, it's all going to look different for every individual. And we just, like I said, the most important thing at the end of the day is 
it's being managed somehow. And, you know, medications can be really powerful and definitely can do the trick. And there are some cases where I'm using everything and they're doing everything and still we are having trouble. So those are good cases for good. It's a good time to bring in and recommend. And I'll be the first person to tell them, look, let's go on metformin. I think it'll really help you. Um, and that's one that gets talked about a lot. Yeah. I see that a lot, you know, with, um, Let's say we have a woman who's 37, 38 and wants mm-hmm. to get pregnant and her, uh, her insulin levels like up in the sixties, Oh boy, <laughs> <You> know, that, <laughs> that might That's be, high. you know, when the, yeah. when the doctor, when she comes to me and says, my doctor really wants me to go on metformin, what do you mm-hmm. think? And mm-hmm. it's like, well, you know, sometimes the ends justify the means. And if we <laughs> want to get that insulin down fast, um, cause time is, of essence, uh, that might be something, you know, you might want to think a little more about. Um, the other one I I talk about a lot with my patients is progesterone, um, as, as a supplement, you know, and especially if, if you're trying to get pregnant and it's like, you know, there's, there's such narrative out there that's like, you can raise your progesterone naturally. And it's like, okay, yeah, sure. You can eat, you know, all of the the nutrients that support progesterone production. But honestly, I think, you know, most of us are unwilling to completely make the shifts in lifestyle to lower stress enough to, you know, enable progesterone to get high enough to support a pregnancy. I mean, I always joke like, oh, my progesterone would be perfect if I just moved to a cabin in the woods where I never had to talk to anybody. Like, <laughs> you know, and I think, I think when we're looking at something like pregnancy, you know, that's really, you know, a place where pharmaceuticals can be helpful in addition to all of the, the nutrition and lifestyle and other work that you're doing. Yeah, definitely. And now progesterone is a really interesting topic. Um, but I just, rem- I try to remind people who do have progesterone prescribed to them that they know completely, they are aware that by giving progesterone or not like giving them, they're not ovulating to, pr- they're not necessarily ovulating to produce that progesterone, you know? So giving progesterone is not always the answer unless they've had something go on. But, but one thing to keep in mind too, with PCOS is that you do that often women who have PCOS have a higher risk for miscarriage. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, and then we know that, especially we know in the recurrent pregnancy loss category of research, we know that that progesterone, you know, after a certain point that they have been able to determine, okay, there was ovulation or that, that window in the progesterone is given, it can help in those cases when it is given, but but yeah, they just need to know what the progesterone is being given for, you know, um, whether that's just if it, if they are ovulating to sustain a pregnancy is typically the reason. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really, a really good point is that, mm-hmm. you know, when you, when your progesterone is low or, you know, near non-existent because you're not ovulating, that's a different situation than when sure. your progesterone is low. Cause you're, you know, maybe nearing those uh, you know, perimenopause years or you're, you know, living a stressful lifestyle um, or your egg quality is declining or all of the reasons that can cause progesterone to, you know, be low after confirmed ovulation, which is a whole different ball of wax than (laughs) not ovulating at all with with the not (laughs) ovulating at all. The progesterone's not the problem. It's you ovulating. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Such an important distinction. Another podcast on that. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I know we should do a whole episode on progesterone. Um, so what would be one thing that you would want people with PCOS to take away from this episode? I just want people to know that you have a gazillion options in terms of the treatment. Really, truly, there's not one treatment approach that fits all. There are many natural medicine solutions, including lifestyle diet, uh, nutraceuticals, you know, meaning like supplements in all forms. You know, the, those solutions are can be very effective for many, but they might not be enough in their entirety for you. And if you end up needing or wanting to use a medication, that is not a failure on your part, that you are the the best solution is what works for you. And the most important thing at the end of the day is that you're, that what you have going on is managed and you feel well, and you can um, proceed in life as you want to and show up in the way you want to. Um, And just no shame, you know, it's like, let's figure out what works for you and help you be the best you can be. Um, but don't give up, you know, trying to find those best solutions for you. And also remember that if you are on the pill or on some form of hormonal birth control, that it is, um, also you want to consider what's, what the PCOS, you know, what's going on underneath the surface and remember, don't, don't forget about it in a way, because you don't want it to kind of surprise you later on too. So keeping in mind what you can do now is always going to be, can always be helpful for your overall health, including the diagnosis of PCOS. Yeah, I, I absolutely no shame in whatever treatment plan you choose, you know, after you've kind of weighed all of the options and decided what's right for you. And I think, you know, a point you made earlier about there being sort of different seasons of life, PCOS is a lifelong condition mm-hmm. and, you know, the way that you choose to address it and work on some of those symptoms now may be very different from what you're doing 20 years from now you know, and it's, it's okay, you know, just keep checking in with yourself about how you're feeling about everything. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, you can have a totally different approach today and then you do tomorrow and you may want to, you know, and so just you, we are all, all evolving people (laughs) all the time. (laughs) So, and so your treatment plans need to be as well. (laughs) And your doctors need to move with that kind of flow as well. I hope so. I, or your nutrition advice. Yeah. So yeah. why don't you um, tell the audience uh, where they can find you? Yeah, definitely. The best place to find me right now is on my Instagram account, Dr. Dr. Karina, C-O-R-I-N-A Dunlap, D-U-N-L-A-P. I am going to be coming out with some really amazing offerings very, very soon. Um, Very much wrapping them up and getting them out and launched in the world. And it's so exciting. Uh, I am available for one-on-one concierge care, year-long care in the states of New Hampshire, Maine, Oregon, and California. And you can reach out to me through basically my website, which is also drkarinadunlop.com. There's a, I do 50 minute consults with everyone who's interested in having one-on-one care. Um, But it does, it does take, it, I am booked out a few months in advance typically. So just be prepared that this is not going to be a quick fix situation because it, it, you know, the care I'm doing is, is to help really make lifelong, long change, deep, deep change. And that takes time. Um, and also, you know, my, I am so excited to be able to offer more to the world um, outside of those that I am serving uh, one-on-one as well. So keep an eye on my, um, my account, my offerings, and I'm so 
grateful to be, have been on your show, Melissa. I'm so, so grateful for all the work that you're doing. Like I said, I recommend your book to almost every single one of my patients, just because there's so many foundations and, and underneath the the name of your book, I will say, you do not have to have PCOS to read this book and, and really benefit from it because the basis of the, of your book, from my perspective is really, you know, it's a foundation for regulating blood sugar and which is like at the base of a lot of root um, reasons why many people have hormone imbalances. So, you know, I, I just, and for a lot of other things too, that your, you know, your book is about, but I love it. Anyway, uh, thank you so much for all the work you do. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so glad you find it useful. And I tell people that too. I mean, I'm glad you picked up on it. It's essentially, you know, a blood sugar balancing anti-inflammatory gut supporting hormone supporting way of eating, um, that really works for many, many conditions. So, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, and many women who are mm-hmm. on the blood sugar roller coaster, regardless mm-hmm. of whether yeah. they have PCOS. So thank you so, so much for joining me. Um, I cannot recommend Dr. Dunlap's Instagram account enough. She is putting such high quality information out there regularly, um, you know, really well thought out, well-referenced little tidbits. I love when I'm, I'm reading your posts and even I am able to take away some, some clinical pearls from it. So I really appreciate what you do. And I'm so glad that we've gotten to connect. Uh, thank you and stay tuned for the next episode. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode, and in the meantime, stay balanced.